0: I listen to The Diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to The Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina.
1: Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to The Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Hey everyone, just a heads up. The first story in today's episode contains a brief mention of self-harm. Please take care while listening, or feel free to skip ahead.
2: I became a teenager during the pandemic which made the glory of becoming a teenager unremarkable no big celebration no friends for more septembers than i can remember i spent my birthday on the south fork of the american river in california just an hour away from my home in lake tahoe we would camp for a weekend with a large group of friends and family floating rapids having dance parties by moonlight and playing restrictions were still pretty tight in september 2020 and because my dad is an emergency room nurse our family was still being pretty cautious but we had created a quarantine with my parents' best friends and their two kids and we were together all the time the day before my 13th birthday our quarantine headed to the american river for an abbreviated celebration to my surprise an amazing gift awaited me there my very own raft red as a rose i christened her the red pearl Our family had been rafting practically my whole life, but I had never had my own boat. On a river trip earlier that summer, we met a family who had given their daughter a raft for her high school graduation. Our group joked it would not take my parents that long to give me one. Indeed, just a few weeks later, we borrowed a raft from a friend and I rode it down a stretch of the salmon in Idaho with enough success that my parents secretly started to look for a boat that could be my own. I felt a rush of independence and pride that my parents had enough confidence and trust in me. I hoped I could live up to their expectations. We spent the night at Camp Lotus, celebrating around a campfire and roasting marshmallows. The next morning, we drove to the puddin known as Chili Bar. I have confidence in my rowing abilities, but sometimes I still get scared. I was panicky and nervous about making any mistakes. A few months later, I would be diagnosed with OCD. But at the time, I didn't understand my unreasonable demand for perfection. Troublemaker on the South Fork is perhaps the most well-known rapid on the whole river, and the one I had been dreading all day. I'd seen so many people flip their rafts there over the years, and although I'd ridden in my dad's boat dozens of times through that rapid, I had never rode it myself alone in my own boat rowing this rapid by myself seemed as scary to me as a mouse trap is to mice and here i was a mouse headed into the biggest mouse trap of all hoping to be quick enough to avoid the trap my mind raced over all the worst possible case scenarios while i sat at the top of the rapid in my boat tears streamed down my face and my hands were shaking i didn't think i could perform well enough to make it through without flipping the boat I took shaky breaths, convincing myself I could do it. My dad's best friend looked me in the eyes and said just what I needed to hear, that he believed in me. His confidence convinced me too. I took deep breaths with closed eyes, wiped my tears, gained my composure, and pulled out of the eddy. I made it through the first part just fine. But then the boat picked up speed and hurtled down the river. The rocks along the river curved sharply. I positioned my raft to miss the wall they formed, allowing me to set up for the big wave that waited right ahead of me. I hit the wave and my boat tilted upwards. Quickly, I dug my oars into the water and pushed forward. I felt the boat continue to tip upwards and hit a wall of moving water. The raft dropped down, picking up speed again. It hit the white water, and with another stroke, I'd complete a troublemaker. My family had been cheering me on throughout the whole thing, and when I reached the bottom, with tears of joy flooding out of my eyes and a surprised smile on my face, I heard my team singing happy birthday. I looked at my boat, the red pearl, and realized she was ushering me into womanhood. I was terrified. She helped me overcome my fear. I ran my hand along her side and felt joy at what we had just gone through together. As rafting season came to an end, snow started to fall, leading me to another beloved sport, ski racing. I created a short video submission for a ski contest called Girl on Fire. In it, I said, I am a daughter, an athlete, a cousin, a niece, a friend, an activist, a dedicated person. I am Autumn Ellingford Rhodes, and I am always on fire. Indeed, I would go on to complete an incredible ski season, winning more races than any time before. As the ski season ended, I headed to Mount Hood for a month of summer race camps. My friends and I paddled the Red Pearl down the Deschutes River on off days. We rode bikes around town and gulped huckleberry milkshakes. I was dominating teenagehood and scoffed at the notion that it is a tumultuous time. But the teenage powers that be were hovering in the wings, waiting to deal me a heaping dose of reality. Toward the end of my time at Mount Hood, I was losing myself. My friends stabbed me in the back. My boyfriend and I broke up and I learned that the mean girl's myth can be real. The pandemic lingered on and I became despondent and depressed. My parents grew increasingly worried and my dad took a leave from work to be with me. I was lonely, lost, confused and scared. I felt I had shattered into a million pieces. I didn't feel like I was living. I was just existing. I started thinking about self-harm. I wanted to feel pain to know that I was alive. I didn't want to accept the fact that I was losing myself. I felt guilty for having thoughts of self-harm. On top of all the things I'd felt like I did wrong in my relationships, I thought feeling this way was wrong too. I didn't want to be known as the crazy girl. I'd felt pain before, but this heartbreak was so much worse. I thought back to when I was the girl on fire. Now, I didn't even feel like I was smoldering. I couldn't muster a spark. I saw therapists, wrote in workbooks, and talked and talked until I was annoyed with my own voice. I was trapped in my own head, surrounded by people, but alone. I was lucky enough to have supportive parents, but still, everything seemed hard. I constantly felt like crying. The only time I wouldn't have tears on the brims of my eyes, threatening to spill, was when I was skiing the course. My parents wanted to pull me from ski camps and take me home, but I begged them to let me stay because the only time I could escape my thoughts was when I was on the course and on the snow. When ski camp ended, we set out for the Rogue River. It had been nearly a year since I got the Red Pearl, and I had been planning to row my own raft. But my parents were concerned. Not about my abilities to row the river, but about my mental state, and if I could clear my mind well enough to do it. There wasn't anyone else to row my boat if I fell apart midway. I had to commit. I thought about my Red Pearl and hoped she would bring me peace. Just like when I was on the ski course, when I was rowing rapids, my mind cleared. There was nothing else, just me, my boat, and the rushing water. The red pearl got me through that trip. It seemed as if she somehow knew what I needed. To me, red is a color of power, and that's what I needed. She was giving me the power to row the Rogue River, giving me the power to return to me. Most of the time, I was in the boat by myself, so I had plenty of time to be alone with my thoughts. I remember rowing and telling myself, this is who you are, this is where you are, so you just have to keep going. On the fifth day of the trip, we arrived at a rapid called Blossom Bar, which has a series of technical moves that includes pushing, pulling, turning the boat, planning and executing your line, and trying your hardest not to get stuck on one of the many rocks that lined the rapid. All the other boats were being rowed by dads who had rowed this rapid before and have had a lot of experience on the water so i wanted to take stock of my options one option was for me to go down in the boat with my dad a former river raft guide and then hike back around to row it with him in the boat to help guide me or he could just row it for me but i wanted to row the rapid it felt like i had to if i had survived my heart being broken I knew I could row Blossom Bar. I was determined to row this whole river. I was prepared to harness my fear and push through. I made the decision that I was going to row the rapid by myself. No one else in my boat. No one guiding me. Just me. As I waited in the eddy above the rapid, I took deep breaths and closed my eyes, planning my route in my mind. The canyon walls stretched above me. I took a final deep breath, ended it with a sharp exhale, and pulled out of the eddy. I positioned my boat in the current, and the glassy water at the top of the rapid pushed me down to the heart of it. I made it through the rapid, and honestly, after all that buildup, it was pretty uneventful. I felt a tremendous weight lift off my chest. I paddled over to my dad and cried, telling him how the river had just washed away all my sadness. My dad cried too and reminded me that the wilderness has the power to heal. I have five more years to be a teenager with the red pearl. I know we will share many adventures in which she will teach me about myself. Whether it is mastering a ski course or algebra, mountain biking the dreaded uphill climb or losing love, there will always be bumps in the road. At only 15, I know I am in store for more heartbreak. I still struggle and I still work with a therapist. But I also know that I'll always be able to find a way back to myself and reignite my spark as the girl on fire. I'm Autumn Ellingford Rhodes and this is my short.
1: After the break, another short from Nikki La Rochelle. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs of bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save thirty percent off your first subscription order at Ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out.
0: I'm a fan of Venn diagrams. They're an effective way to illustrate, as the definition goes, the logical relationship between two or more sets of items. A primary Venn diagram in my life is the relationship between who I am as an athlete and who I am as a parent. The overlap between these two realities can feel small at times. But to my delight, a number of my friends also reside in this murky in-between. Parents who are athletes or athletes who are parents, working to reconcile these two major parts of who they are, just like me. You could call us a squad, with a bond, Forged by Cheerio detritus, stretch marks, and zero time to warm up before a race. My origin story as an athlete is modest at best. My Italian grandma used to say, I'm 5'5, 5 feet tall, and 5 feet wide. This is my inheritance. In sixth grade, the mandatory one-mile run in P.E. was my middle school nightmare. We had to complete the run in less than 10 minutes. Sweaty and red-faced, I was at the very back yelling, I TASTE BLOOD! I hated running. I much preferred watching Indiana Jones and memorizing song snippets from the Cool Rock infomercial. Not to brag, but these songs are still nestled in a cozy part of my brain despite my inability to remember my own wedding anniversary. It wasn't until college that I revisited my running demons and signed up for a half marathon. The real motivation here was to find a boyfriend, mid-run, somewhere along the streets of Fort Collins. I printed out a just-freaking-finished training plan and taped it to my wall. Three miles one day, five miles the next, and so on. The night before the race, I read up on carbo-loading and consumed far too much gnocchi, which would have made my Italian grandma proud, but in retrospect was a definite misstep. Still, I crossed the finish line and was absolutely elated. I deserved a participation trophy. Someone get me a computer so I can sign up for a full marathon. Now, I'm in my mid-30s. Is 37 mid or late? I'm sticking with mid. I've been at this endurance racing stuff since that fateful half marathon at age 20. When I moved to Breckenridge 15 years ago, a mountain sports mecca, my pursuits flourished. I raced ultra marathons and tackled a number of precarious multi-day ridge traverses. My husband and I climbed all of Colorado's 58 14,000 foot peaks in one summer. I traveled to Europe twice to race at the world championships in ski mountaineering as a member of the U.S. national team. Sixth grade Nikki is equally baffled and delighted. Who tastes blood now, middle school? About the time I was finding some success in the endurance world, my husband and I knew we needed to decide if we wanted to have a kid. We would waffle back and forth often deferring the decision to another day. Eventually, we decided to give her a go. Lo and behold, the baby-making happened without much trouble, and Penelope J., a.k.a. Penny, a.k.a. One Cent, was born in 2015. I had a generally uneventful pregnancy, but postpartum proved more trying. Adding a teeny, helpless, utterly dependent human to one's life scheme can be jarring. I felt bluesy at times with poignant moments of true despair. My inner nihilist made a distinct appearance, prompting strong doubt that anything mattered at all. Life, it would say, is simply a series of illusions, meaningless distractions until we die. I yearned for something that was just for me, Don't get me wrong, I loved my little penny, but man, diaper-changing, sleepless nights, and breastfeeding sure made me want to drop everything and go wander around in the woods solo. Eventually, it was time to bust the rust and get myself back into the race world, I chose the Grand Traverse as my first big race back, six months postpartum. The GT is a 40-mile point-to-point backcountry ski touring race from Crested Butte to Aspen. The race has a laundry list of mandatory gear items that are reviewed before the start. I giggled to myself when I set a portable breast pump down next to my avalanche beacon and first aid kit. The volunteer checking my gear looked baffled so I explained how I was still breastfeeding and had real concern that my boobs would not last the full duration of the race and that breast milk may expel through my race suit. This, my friends, is what we call oversharing. I forged my way through this postpartum time, discovering tricks and efficiencies to reclaim some parts of my life that I really enjoyed. While racing proved to be much harder than it was before having a kid, I was lucky to have a support system of parent-athletes who paved the way, ushering me through with encouragement and care. Just as our lives regained some semblance of normalcy, Brad and I decided we should throw our worlds back into chaos and disorder by having another kid. We tried for a year and a half with no avail. Finally, I was able to get pregnant and felt relieved we'd made it through that holding pattern. But... At my 11-week ultrasound, my doctor could not detect a heartbeat. I was shocked and held tears back with my teeth. I told myself that miscarriage is something that happens to one in five pregnancies, in fact, and so I shouldn't be too surprised or upset. But I was upset. I felt profound loss. My doctor gave me three options. I could wait for my body to miscarry naturally, though the time frame for that is hard to estimate. I could take a pill that induces the miscarriage, or I could have a DNC, a surgical procedure to remove tissue from inside my uterus. I opted for the pill treatment. Unfortunately, I kept bleeding beyond the standard few days and ended up bleeding for weeks. A surgery was required, This long-winded process, from a positive test to a surgery, was arduous. Not to mention the ache of grieving a life that would not come to be. Brad and I decided to keep trying, and about a year later I was able to get pregnant, but miscarried again at eight weeks. It had been three years of infertility and miscarriage. Under the guidance of my OBGYN, Brad and I tried simpler medical procedures for conception, but nothing worked. Eventually, we decided to quit trying. It wasn't worth the heartbreak. Making this choice was difficult as I had a strong sense that we were supposed to have two kids. I can't explain this or justify it to anyone. It's just how I felt. I had saved a bag of Penny's baby clothes, and every time I considered passing them on, I simply couldn't. That bag represented my deepest yearning for another child, and the gesture of giving it away was more than I could handle. But... Five years after Penny was born, I got pregnant, and this time it wasn't exactly planned. In utter disbelief, I held the positive pregnancy test inches from my face to extra confirm the plus sign and simply texted F*** to Brad. Not bad fk, just disbelief These are two different things. I had low-grade anxiety the whole pregnancy, especially at the beginning, bracing myself for loss to pounce at any moment. But this baby prevailed, Tegan Mini, a.k.a. T-Money, a.k.a. Tegan Taco, all 4 pounds and 11 ounces of her, born in 2021. We were elated to be a family of four, and I was thrilled to have that bag of baby clothes stashed away in the closet. Throughout this journey, through all its ups and downs, joys and disappointments, I've always been right here, smack dab in the middle of my Venn diagram. With the demands of two little ones at home, it's difficult to make training and racing happen, so hard at times that I question if it's worth it. Between social media and the observation of my own community, I'm struck by how much time and energy some people give to training. I can't do that, I say to myself. I'm lucky if I get out the door some days. I feel desperate to race on equal footing with my competitors. Or perhaps more accurately, I feel desperate to manage the way people see me. I want them to know I have a one-year-old at home. I want them to know I didn't sleep the night before or simply don't have the time available that I once did. The justifications, whether worthy or not, are endless in my mind. But is anyone really paying attention? And am I really defined by my results? Isn't racing just for fun? I've come to recognize that no, no one's really paying attention. And no, I'm not defined by my results. And that yes, racing is just for fun. And if it's not for fun, I need to take an honest look in the mirror and figure out what purpose it's serving. Racing before kids was a previous form of my life. Racing with kids is my current form. At the outset, the transition from form to form was disorienting. My current form is expansive, requiring more bandwidth, less control, more energy, and less assurance. And I found the most difficult part is letting go of what my prior form gave me. Identity, freedom, independence, and self-focus. In the middle of the Venn diagram, I feel the tug of war between the parent and the athlete. And because of the compromise it takes to make both fit, it's easy to think I'm doing a shit job at everything. But the new form is big and full and bursting at the seams with all sorts of goodness. Like when I watch Penny wander through a slot canyon, looking up at the narrow ribbon of sky, mouth agape with wonder. Or when I peek through the door first thing in the morning to see Tegan bouncing in her crib smiling ear to ear in anticipation to see me. Or when I sit with both girls in my lap, reading a book about outer space, talking about how divine presence is everywhere, in every being and throughout the cosmos. And of course, seeing them cheer for me at the end of a race, as they burst with pride whether I get first place or i mid-pack fodder. I have my eyes set on my highest priorities, these two sweet girls who made me a mom. But I also see that I don't have to lose sight of my own pursuits, training, racing, but also paying attention to what new yearnings are stirring inside of me. I've come to recognize that the onus is on me to manage my expectations and calibrate the balance. And isn't this the work we're all doing in our own Venn diagrams? For me, the richness of life comes from varied and robust experiences. Achievement, failure, challenge, love, exhaustion, expansion, and wonder. Now I can see how I'm right where I'm supposed to be. In the middle of my own messy and wonderful Venn diagram. I'm Nikki La Rochelle. And this is my short.
1: Thank you, Autumn and Nikki, for sharing your stories. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, we're all yours. Please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdairies.com. Music today from John Barry, Feverkin, Jason Tyler Burton, Bradley Carter, Kai Engel, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of The Artists, Track Club, or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nis Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to The Artists at our website, DirtbagDiaries.com. This episode was produced by Lauren Delaney Miller, Cordelia Zars, Becca Cahal, and Ashley Langholz. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.